So today we're going to continue in our series in the book of John. Uh, if you guys haven't been here, um, we are on this slow but beautiful journey um, throughout the entire book of John. We started, I think, back in 2019, uh, and now we're in 2021, and we are only at chapter 13. So it's been, it's been pretty amazing. But specifically for the text today, I'm really, really excited um, that I'm able to share this. You know, sometimes... You know, we have a teaching team here, and sometimes when you get assigned a text, you're like, oh, man, like, how am I going to do this? But this one is so straightforward, uh, as you guys heard uh, from the reading of the text. So as a continuously forming community like we are, uh, the implications from this specific passage today is massive to our understanding of Jesus himself and our understanding of how we are to serve one another as followers of Christ. Um. As we read from the text, there's really not much mystery uh, to what Jesus is showing his disciples and what it truly looks like to serve one another. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, the authenticity and transparency of serving one another. And as simple as it may seem, we've heard this text probably a million times if you've grown up in church. If you're not, you heard it today, and the implications of washing someone's feet, as we can all gain from our context, is a pretty intimate thing to do. Um... But as we examine what Jesus is actually doing in his cultural context, it's absolutely jarring. It is absolutely jarring. It's really this radical idea. It's an upside-down idea of serving one another that should lead us to rethink and realign our understanding of service to one another as followers of Christ. To your brothers and sisters sitting around you, to uh, our neighbors here in South Park, Um, and all throughout San Diego. Um, It's really, really incredible. But service to others uh, is actually really extreme. It's extremely relevant uh, for our day and age. And on the surface, we we all really long for uh, synergy amongst everybody. But how? How do we do this? How do humans create a loving society? How do we get equality for all? How can we do away with the injustice and brokenness of the world. Everyone is looking for the answer to these questions, but no one really has the clear answer. If, if we go onto our newsfeed or our social media, we are bombarded with politicians who are, who are saying this is the right way, this is the wrong way, with certain causes that are, that, are, that are happening that say this is the way that we are to save our nation, that we are to save our community. And at the heart of it, and what people long for is peace. And what people long for is the synergy amongst us. That's the heart of it. But, but we don't always get it. <laughs> and I, I include ourselves in that. We include ourselves in that. Uh, And and one thing that secularism says that there is no absolute authority who can tell us what to do or how to relate to each other, and we must all decide for ourselves what's best. One person's vision of happiness contradicts his, his or her neighbor's vision for the good life, and so conflict breaks out. All the wars of human history right up to our current heated and polarized moment are nothing more than everyone trying to force their personal version of the good, true, and beautiful life on one another. Everyone deserves the ideals of a benevolent kingdom, but they, we, want to be the king. 
We want the kingdom without the true king. We want to build our fortresses and we want to live this lavish life and we want to prosper. And we want to love one another, but we are unwilling at times to submit to a savior. And our passage this morning is actually the answer to every question we're asking. Again, how do we create a loving society? How do we get equality for all? How can we heal the brokenness of the world? We obey the king and multiply his kingdom ways throughout all the earth. Knowing who Jesus is, the true king, and responding to his example of sacrificial service and obedience is the actual hope for our world. And that's our big, our big idea from the passage. How do we create a just and equal society of kindness? At Neighbors, we answered this question in three different ways. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. And with this in mind, our two main points for the day is who Jesus is and how we respond to Jesus to who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, I pray um, that your spirit will come down and be in our hearts and our minds, God, as we read through this text today. God, I pray that we are not, I am not merely just a, a mouthpiece and that uh, we're not merely just hearers of the word, Father, but I pray that we do. Father, I pray that we are convicted. I pray that we are um, a people who desire to serve one another. Um, so, Father, let your text speak to us. And I pray in your name. Amen. So here's the first point, who, who Jesus is. Um, so right now in John 13, in the text that Emmanuel just read, uh, we are situated in a very tense and pivotal moment in the book of John. Uh, John 13, 1 through 17 uh, is actually the, the, the scene that we're put in is the day in Holy Week we refer to as Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means command. So the word most similar to our English lexicon, our, our English uh, vocabulary is mandate. So this command is made clear uh, as we read in verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. It's pretty straightforward. We must have this in mind as followers of Christ observing this text. The idea being presented is not just a recommendation or just a really nice thing that we can do for one another. Rather, it's a mandate from Jesus. It's a mandate. Jesus is saying, do these things to one another. Let's pause and actually let that sink in for a moment. The disciples' teacher and source of truth is now washing their feet, and they are mandated to do the same to others. We are mandated to do the same to others. But before understanding the significance of the actual foot washing, we must understand the weight of the one washing their feet. So let's observe uh, verse 1 through 3, as I'm going to reread this, this is kind of the banner over the whole passage today. This is the, uh, this is the, the, the banner over what, uh, what, is, uh, what Jesus is proclaiming. Uh, it was just before the Passover festival. 
Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that, he, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. The hour that Jesus is actually speaking about is his impending death on the cross for us. Up until this point in John, uh, we have heard Jesus specifically say that his hour had not yet come. Uh, and we read this in uh, John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. And then following the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. So both of those miraculous events drew many people to inquire about Jesus and wanted to meet this man who turns water into wine, who can multiply food, who can walk on water. And I absolutely do not blame the crowd for doing that because I would want that as well. I would want to meet him. However, Jesus chose to remove himself before any fanfare came about. It is as though his mission on earth was not merely to amuse a crowd. Being seen to all as a miracle worker was not the last act that Jesus desired. And verse 3 echoes that of verse 1 with two distinct variants. He had come from God, and the Father had put all things under his power. Now, I may be extremely childish, but when I initially read this verse, it so reminded me of a scene from Thor Ragnarok. How many here have seen Thor? Well, that's a lot of people who haven't seen Thor. Um, specifically the scene when Thor received Odin Force. You guys remember that scene? Yeah, see, I got some hands in the air, yeah. Uh, in this epic scene, um, the Asgardians, who were Thor's people, were getting slaughtered by his sister Hela, who had come back to Asgard to reclaim her rightful throne. From that sentence alone, if this doesn't draw you to, like, want to see it, I don't know what interests you. Um, but she was the most brutal warrior whose powers could not be matched by anyone, except for Odin, actually. Okay, I'm going to nerd out for a second. Except for Odin, but he was dead. He was dead. At this point, Thor is an absolute mess. His hammer, which brings him strength, was shattered. His iconic blonde locks have been cut off, and he only has one eye. So he's a mess. However, Thor, with all of his bravery and love for the Asgardian race, goes to battle his sister and is almost killed. And while on the brink of death, his dead father, Odin, channels his inner crazy Marvel magic and has a conversation with Thor, reminding him that he is the god of thunder. In this dramatic scene, it concludes with Thor as he's talking to his father, and he says, I am not as strong as you. That is actually the worst Thor impression of all time. But at least I look like Chris Hemsworth. That's what people tell me. I'm just kidding. Thank you. Which Odin, yep, blocks, A. Um, which Odin responds, no, you're stronger. And you guys know the rest. Thunder and lightning fill Thor's entire being, and he goes ham on everyone. He just destroys all the opposition to Asgard. Now, I can't believe I'm going to make a correlation to Jesus from Thor, but I'm going to do it. Jesus may not have displayed his power in this loud and obvious way, but the power and impact of him taking the role of a servant 
with his disciples ripples throughout all eternity as one of the most powerful acts of all time. His power is on full display as he takes on the role of a servant. We can gather, again, from our own cultural context that washing someone else's feet could be looked at as a very demeaning or just a very simple task. I don't have to write a manual on how to wash someone's feet. If there's dirt, you wash it, right? However, the implications are far weightier in this Greco-Roman cultural context. The role of washing feet was actually reserved for servants and deemed a menial task. There was no skill, there was no prestige, no honor in this act. In fact, the Jews actually believed that this job should not even be reserved for Jewish servants, but only that of Gentile servants or for women or for children. Now let's recall, let's stop here for a second and remember a couple chapters ago, as Dan taught us about Mary pouring out, uh, pouring out the oil on Jesus, the perfume on Jesus' feet. So even in that context, that may have been a little bit more normal for his disciples to see. But for their savior, for their king to take this role of servant is absolutely mind-blowing for them. However demeaning this task may be, it was actually completely necessary. Now, again, to set the scene, they weren't eating dinner on like this nice restoration hardware set with chairs whittled out of oak wood. If oak wood is your preferred wood of choice, I don't know what is now. Um, But it was actually, it was more intimate. Imagine like a flat mat that is just on the floor. The table was extremely low. And, um, man, I shouldn't have my phone up. Oh, my gosh, guys. That's like teaching 101. Shouldn't have my phone there. Um, They were all really low. And it was really typical for people, as they're eating dinner, reclining, to be down on their left arm with their feet radiating out. So it's a very, very intimate setting. And without, without the washing of the feet, it could turn out to be an intimate setting gone wrong. And then most likely they'd been trudging through the streets of Jerusalem with sandals, allowing much dirt and debris to remain on their feet. So again, this task of washing feet was extremely necessary yet extremely demeaning. Now the scene is set, and right here we see Jesus rise from this dinner, takes off his outer garment, and wraps a towel around his waist. There was no thunder. There was no lightning. He literally dons the apparel of a servant and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And as all of these disciples sit in silence and awe and utter disbelief, at what Jesus is doing, we already know who's going to speak up and say something. Peter. <laughs> and Peter objects and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. As we have gotten to know Peter through our journey in John, uh, this is pretty typical behavior of him. Uh, 
Peter in this, in this context, he became angry, maybe even annoyed at what he deemed was unfair. He did not believe that, the Lord, that his Lord and Savior would take the role of an actual servant to wash his feet. But Jesus sternly yet lovingly tells Peter that he has no share with him unless he does this. And having no share with Jesus, as, we, as we've learned about Peter, would be the most devastating thing. So then his response is even more Peter. He says, then don't just wash my feet, God, wash my whole body. And Don Carson, uh, uh, a theologian and, and one of the, uh, one of the um, authors that we follow through as, as a team here, uh, he says this, if there was nothing more at stake than the naked act of foot washing, Jesus' response would have seemed petty, unbearably rigid, it would sound like fake humility. I command you to let me be humble and let me wash your feet or you're fired. But this is not the case. He's foreshadowing his ultimate sacrifice on the cross by symbolically emptying himself before his disciples. We can have zero share with Jesus unless he makes us clean. Zero share. This idea of Jesus cleansing us may actually be equally terrifying and equally reassuring. Let me explain. It, it, it could be terrifying, terrifying because in order to be cleansed, we must reveal fully what we need to be cleansed of. Imagine with me taking the most shameful thoughts and feelings that we have and just handing them to someone. Imagine with me right now Everything that is, is, is a burden to you, the most shameful places and spaces, and turning to someone, to your neighbor, and saying, hey, this is, this is everything. This is what I'm most shameful for. This is what I'm most scared about. This is what I fear for my future, and just handing that over. We don't want people to experience what we are shameful or feel, fearful for for so many different reasons. Maybe we want to guard people from the pain for fear of them getting hurt. Maybe we're fearful to be vulnerable because it, leads, it actually leads to more pain. There are so many reasons when we sit with the idea of being cleansed, it will make us respond just like Peter and say, no, you're never going to wash my feet. You're never going to cleanse me. But there's our Savior. There's Jesus, the servant king who so sternly and so lovingly kneels before us and takes away our shame and guilt so that we can experience freedom in salvation. Jesus is the servant king who showcases in this act the purest form of love for his people. Now let's move to our second point. Understanding a little bit more of who Jesus is and the role that he took on how do we respond to this? If we now know that Jesus presents himself as the Savior King who takes the place of a servant to save his people, how do we as who claim to be his followers respond to this? As Jesus plainly states, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is saying, serve others as I have served you. But with the foot washing scene set up as our example, the idea of serving should incite in his followers and us an, a different type of weight to serve one another. Again, serving one another isn't this nice anecdotal thing that we add to our walk with Christ. It is actually the most powerful and kingdom-oriented act that we show to people. And this should urge us as followers of Jesus to recommit today our dedication to serving others. It's interesting, as I think about that, I, I know for me, there's been so many opportunities in the way that we talk in the church about serving. Typically, it goes, you know, we join a church, we join a community, and it's like, hey, where are you serving at? Are you going to serve? And it's like, no, I'm going to come back next Sunday, and I'm going to check things out and really pray and meditate, and then, and then I'm going to get ready to serve. And, and again, for, in that, with that mindset and the way that we've been brought up in our church culture, what that does is it actually um, allows us to not serve in the present moment to not serve the needs of others right around us. Not that we have to be a part of this major ministry or this major serving thing, but it's the people that are right in front of us. It's our neighbors that we need to serve. And I think that sometimes we can get, um, we can get disillusioned with the idea that it has to be this, mon- this, this epic thing where thousands and thousands of people come and, and we're able to serve them. But it is in the mundane. It is in the everyday. It's in the washing of feet. Uh, In other words, Jesus is saying, I've showed you this pattern of serving, so do this to one another. Uh, A pattern of serving may not come naturally to us. Uh, In fact, our selfish desires rooted deeply inside of us resist the actual idea of pouring out in service to one another. Now, I've been married for nine years. Uh, In two weeks, actually, our anniversary is coming up. Uh, Yeah, thank you. And I've learned a lot of things Uh, about myself in this time. And one of the most glaring things that I have learned, and for you young married couples and couples who are going to get married or just people in relationship, uh, just know that I learned that I am very naturally selfish, like extremely selfish. For example, Ashley and I have three little kids um, that you guys have all most likely seen run around this parking lot uh, like maniacs, and I claim those three babies. Uh, well, as many as you, uh, you guys may know that they're actually all under the age of five. So we have three kids under the age of five and they don't appreciate a full night of sleep, um, at all. Uh, in fact, they don't even appreciate the beds that we bought them. So what they do is they choose to sleep in ours every night, all of them, except for one, Tegan Joy, who is in her crib. Now, Tegan honestly may be the cutest two-year-old I've ever seen, but every morning she wakes up in her crib at an ungodly hour and screams to the top of her lungs, Oh, Mommy! Oh, Mommy! And then when that doesn't work, right behind that, Oh, Daddy! Oh, Daddy! Now, she can't get herself out of the crib. Her brother and sister, Tatum and Tice, they can't get her out of the crib which leaves Ashley and I to wake up 
and strategically make our way through our kids who are plastered over our floor in our bed and grab little Tiggy Weegs out of her crib. Now, selfishly, I do not want to be the one who does that. I want to sleep in and have Ashley grab her out of the crib every single morning. And admittedly and honestly in full confession before my church family, I have acted super selfishly in this matter. My instinct is not to jump out of bed and allow my wife to sleep longer, but my instinct is to preserve myself by sleeping a little bit longer. In this matter, I am not serving her. But I desire, I really do desire, Ash, I desire to change this pattern for the person that I love. This is accountability, too. Yeah. But I desire to change this pattern for the person I love the most in this planet. But what about someone that I don't care for that much? What about someone who wrongs me and makes a fool out of me? What should I do? Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. In his dialogue with Peter, he states, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And there is zero indication in this text that Jesus skipped over Judas's feet. There's also no indication that Jesus treated him differently as he performed this menial task. He took the, he took the role of servant before his very own betrayer without hesitation, without reluctancy. And this is absolutely jarring. And he also didn't boast about him overcoming his haters or telling the other disciples, man, I really don't like that guy, Judas, and I'm actually pretty sure he's going to betray me, but I washed his feet. Did you guys see that? Did you guys see that? That wasn't Jesus. We are to create patterns of genuine service to both followers and non-followers of Christ, to those we walk with in our faith and those that vehemently oppose our faith, to those we love dearly and our greatest adversary, This is not a suggestion or a nice cherry on top of our faith. Rather, it's a mandate from our Savior. We serve because our Savior first served us. We give because our Savior poured out everything for us. He is the exemplar that we are to follow. His moral code is perfect, and because of that, we are made perfect in him. When people claim that secularism, this proposed system of free thinkers philosophizing on what they claim to be true is the salvation of our nation, I want to tear that idea apart with thunder and lightning in my being. But I won't. I can't. Because I so desperately want to have part with Jesus. I desire to be cleansed by Jesus and follow his example of service to all. So before my church family and as we are a growing community, I fully commit to serve everyone around me. And I hope you do as well. To my community group I meet with every Wednesday night. To my wife, to my kids, my enemies. I want to pour it out. Jesus wraps everything up in this one direct yet loving phase, phrase. <clears throat> Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do what I just did. Take on the form of a servant to everyone until it is your time to die. If you do, you will commune with me on earth and in eternity to come. And in closing, there are two takeaways I believe uh, that we should walk away with today. The first one is we must recognize Jesus as the quintessential example of our life. How often have we heard or even said 
ourselves that we need to follow Jesus and model our lives after him. I can actually recall countless messages I've taught over the years to middle and high schoolers, drilling the idea of morality of the Bible into their brains. And I believe there was a lot of good teaching these students, Christian, these students, um, I believe there was a lot of good teaching for these students about Christian values and how they should interact with their parents and their peers. But I don't know if this idea of humble service that we're reading about from our Savior was at the forefront of those teachings. And in full confession, I don't even believe that my service to others was a desire of humility, rather self-fulfillment. But there stands Jesus, a king who dons the apparel of a servant emptying himself before his disciples at his last act before death. And there's this poem that I want to read that I think is truly powerful. It was written by this guy named Brian Wren. Great God, in Christ you call our name and then receive us as your own, not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love intends. To work till all creation sings. To fill all worlds, to crown all things. And how, last, the last point, how do we serve others? I could sit here and probably give you a laundry list of ways that you can serve others. Different things around our city, different churches that are offering service to others, but I think the simple answer, yet the most difficult thing to do, is we serve others with absolute humility. I love this quote again by Carson that I believe puts really a stamp on this passage, and he says, Little becomes of Jesus' followers more than humility. Christian zeal divorced from transparent humility sounds hollow, even pathetic. Zeal and passion for Jesus is actually incredible to have. Peter himself, as displayed throughout the entirety of the gospel, has great passion for the king in front of him. He loved Jesus more than anything. But zeal and passion not predicated by transparent humility and service to all leaves us without share with Christ. And Jesus states, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just, just exactly how I loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us love one another in humble service. Let us look to the servant king who took on all of our guilt and shame by dying a brutal death on the cross. This week, I'm gonna close with this, with this story. This week I was confronted in so many different ways by this passage in my own personal relationships, even in service to others that I didn't know. Friday morning, uh, as I was going for a walk and I was just trying to collect my thoughts for today, 
I was making my way in my neighborhood and I was walking back towards my house. I see this elderly lady who is walking across the street and she ends up falling, stumbling and falling and she face plants right on the asphalt. And I run over there and I, and I pick her up and she has blood just gushing from her nose. She has this huge hematoma on her forehead and she's disoriented and she's, she's lost. She didn't really know where she was at. And I, I picked her up and got her back into her apartment room, her apartment, I sat her down, tried to call her social worker, tried to call someone to come and, 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 and help her out. She had no family. Her home was like a mausoleum of pictures and she was just all alone. And as I'm in there and, and she has cuts on her knees and her hands all bloody and blood is running through her, it's coming out of her nose. I look at this lady and I don't know what to do. And so I just go and I, I grab some tissues and she's like, there's some hydrogen peroxide in, in the bathroom. So I get some of that and I'm trying to clean out her cuts and she's going, and she's wincing every time that I do. And I'm like, I, we gotta clean this out. And then I end up calling the paramedics and they come and check her out and they take her to the hospital. But I was reminded in that story, and I don't say this story in order for you to be like, wow, Matt is a great guy. That was a menial task for me to aid my neighbor, for me to serve my neighbor. And as I was sitting there, and I was cleaning the cuts in her knees and on her hands, I was just reminded that that is what God is doing to us. As we accept him as our Lord and Savior, as we choose this path of salvation, he is bringing us in, he's sitting us down, and he's saying, I understand the hurt and pain and the disorientation that you're feeling and experiencing right now. But I'm here to cleanse that. I'm here to clean that. I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to get you to healing. And the jarring thing is this is what we do to one another. We are so isolated. We have a natural desire to preserve ourselves. But that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus humbly kneels before his disciples and he kneels before us and he says, I'm gonna pour everything out for you. And if I sit up here and I'm crying and I'm moved by this text, but I don't do anything, what good is it? I have no share with Jesus. And if, you, if you're sitting down and you're listening to this and you're like, wow, that's a good message or wow, that's a bad message and you're not moved by this, then what are we doing? As we see our Savior King don this apparel of a servant to serve and pour out as his last act before he is to be crucified, a brutal death, we are, as his people, to do the same.